see me here, I'm sure that either your greatest fears or your greatest joys are being realized. Amen, brother. Thank you. Thank you. Ah. Wow. It's great. Well, you know what? It might be something between joy and fear. But I don't know what that would be. Uh, hey, as everybody knows, as we all know, we have spent the month of June. That's going back a little over a month. We spent the month of June focusing on the offerings that are outlined. Thank you, Debbie. In the first six or so chapters of the book of Leviticus. Okay, so show of hands here. Um, how many of you ever thought that you'd still be paying attention after this many weeks in the book of Leviticus? Anybody? Okay. And yet, here we are, just dying to dive into it, right? Okay, so let's do it. Today we'll be looking at chapter 9 in Leviticus. So if you have a Bible with you, you can open up to chapter 9. I'm not going to read straight through it because, well, if you remember, uh, there was a movie, Smokey and the Bandit, right? And there, was, and there was this theme song, and at the very beginning it said, we have a long way to go and a short time to get there. So I'm going to focus on the short time, just so you know, so that if you do doze off, uh, you won't be able to get much sleep. Okay, so today we're looking into Leviticus chapter 9. It is one of the pivotal moments in the history of both the nation of Israel and in the history of our redemption. And it has huge implications for us. So if you ever thought that, thank God, the Leviticus thing is behind us, sorry, it's not. Oh, it is, but it's not. The title of this message is The Power of God's Presence. So thank God it's not over. And before we get into it, however, uh, I want to remind you of something that Jesus said to his followers in Matthew 18 and verse 20. These words appear. For where two or three have gathered in my name, there I am in their midst. Ever heard that before? Good. So uh, tell me. What do you think about that? Go ahead. What do you think about that? It's, he's here. He's here now. He's the judge. Is that what you said? Interesting perspective. Anybody else? What does it mean where two or three of you are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of you? Oh, it means strength, maybe power kind of thing, right? Good. Good, good. God's present. Excellent. Excellent. Okay, um, thank you. Oh, we should be gathering. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. Good thought, Dave. Ooh, reconciliation has taken place. That's an interesting thought there. Actually, hold on to that one, and I'm going to move ahead from there. Um, so this is what you think about when you think about that statement. But what have you been told that it means? Ah, okay. So basically most of those things are what we've been taught, right? That Christ is present in the midst of believers. It might have something to do with power. It might have something to do with redemption. It might have something to do with judgment. It, all kinds of things. Yes, you see, most often when we think of those words, uh, we think of it as if it were some kind of encouragement that he would always be with us, like big brother, right? Taking care of business. Uh, when we get in, in trouble because we cut off the high priest's servant's ear, he jumps in and saves our butt, right? 
Okay, that's kind of reassuring thought. Makes you feel warm and nice inside. But I need to be completely honest. Context is everything. Actually, what's going on in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20, this is the last of those verses. What's going on there is that Jesus has been telling his disciples about how to deal with sin in the fellowship. The passage starts like this. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be confirmed. So Jesus is talking here about dealing with sin. But the picture is bigger than that. See, right there in the very first verse of that chapter, it tells us that the disciples came to Jesus in order to ask him a question. Who's greatest in the kingdom of heaven? This passage where Jesus says, where two or more are gathered in my name, there am I in your midst, that's part of Jesus' answer to the question, who is greatest in the kingdom? He seems to be saying something like part of the responsibility of those who are great in the kingdom is dealing with sin in the fellowship and dealing with it in a way that restores, not punishes. So let's put Jesus' words together so we can see the implications. And when they follow this quickly on one another, it just has that much more weight. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. If he does not listen to you, take one or more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be confirmed for where Two or three of you are gathered together in my name. There am I in your midst. Jesus is saying that sin hurts relationships. We know because he says, if he listens to you, you have won your brother. And that restoring fellowship is really important. So important, in fact, that whenever you do it, whenever you confront Sin in order to preserve fellowship, I am there with you, he says. Doing it, that is healing the fellowship according to your prayers and God's word. So remember that concept because it has everything to do with being priests in his kingdom in accordance with Leviticus chapter nine. The question for us then is, what are we to learn from Leviticus chapter nine? And since context is everything, I wanna take a few seconds to remind us of the setting of Leviticus chapter nine. It's a little more than one year since God parted the Red Sea, and the children of Israel walked through on dry ground. For that year, Israel has been camped out at the foot of Mount Sinai, terrified because of the presence of God. I don't know if I have one year's worth of fresh underwear but they were that terrified. You see, they had seen the mountain shrouded in thick clouds and darkness. Fire, smoke, lightning, thunder, shaking ground, earthquakes, 
and the booming voice of God. And they had a command. Do not let the people come near the mountain or touch it lest they die. That command frightened them enough for them to say to Moses, don't let God talk to us anymore. You go talk to him and tell us what he says. We don't want to hear from God anymore. So they withdrew from the mountain and from God's presence. But you know what it's like with a mountain? You can't just walk away a few steps and get away from it, right? It's there. One year ago, in this very same place, one year ago for them, in that very same place, they watched the ground open up and swallow some of them as part of God's judgment that came upon them because Aaron listened to them and built a golden calf for them to worship. And in that year, in the shadow of God's terrifying presence on Mount Sinai, they collected material and built the tabernacle. And in the most recent few days for them, they had not only erected the tabernacle, but they watched the glory of God's presence move from the top of the mountain into the tent they had made. God was no longer on the mountain far away. He was in their midst. And that was terrifying and sobering and a great blessing. Of course, he had always been that close to them. You see, the cloud by day, the fire by night, the manna every morning. Those things were also expressions of God's glory, but they missed it. They missed it because of the terror that was on the mountain. God is terrifying in the power of his glorious holiness, but at the same time, he is nurturing in his loving kindness. But we protect ourselves because we know who we are. When we see him and we think of us, we need to be protected. So we protect ourselves and we keep one eye on the quaking mountain even as we gather in daily blessings. Ever aware of the potential danger out there but taking for granted the multiplied blessings. At this point, God was in the tent they had built, and though he was near, yet they could not approach, but only hear his words through Moses. So we recently finished a series of five messages that focused on what they heard from Moses, the instructions for the sacrifices. The series we presented was titled Offerings. And in that series, we learned a few things. Now, these are kind of important to remember, so you might want to just jot this down. The free will or burnt offering spoke of what it means to be devoted to God. Everything about our life to be devoted to God's service. The grain or gift offering spoke to us about gratitude for God's supply and care. The peace offering, which was offered up in smoke, Leviticus says, as food, spoke to us about what it means to have peace with God and actually enjoy fellowship with him. Then there were two kinds of sin offering. 
the, they, they speak, the two sin offerings speak of atonement. The first for unintentional sins speaks to the fact that a ransom from unintentional sin had been granted, even paid. The second, the guilt offering, told us that restitution for our deliberate sins had been made. And then, of course, in the first message of the new series, which we're in today, by the way, called Priests, Pastor Alex told us about two things. God's method of, uh, yeah, he unpacked Leviticus 8 for us, didn't tell us about the two things. I'm going to do that. He told us about the call on Aaron and his sons to become priests and the process by which they were ordained. And he said last week that what that means for us is we have been called to be a kingdom of priests, just like Israel had been called to be a nation of priests. So today we'll look into the first sacrifices that were actually made under the system that God had been building. Up until now, you know, we always think about the temple worship and the sacrifices. Up until this point in history, there were no temple, or in this case, tabernacle, sacrifices yet. They hadn't been made. They just learned how to make them. And, and then the priesthood was just ordained for the purpose of making them. So today we'll focus on two things. The method God used to approve, to put his stamp of approval on the system, the priests and the sacrifices, and we'll learn about how God hallowed those things. He made them special by the presence of his glory and power. And last, of course, we'll see how the priesthood, the sacrifices in God's glory and power in that system are fulfilled in Jesus and pertain to us, his church. So that's a really long introduction, right? But context is everything. So what I want to do is ask you to stand with me and pray. I told you I'd wake you up. So uh, what I want, just pray with me and then we'll look at the teaching. Father, we call upon uh, your spirit actually, Holy Spirit, to carry out the ministry that was declared about you that you would convince us concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment, but also that you would walk alongside and teach us. And so, Holy Spirit, teach us today and convince us about our walk tomorrow. Father, oversee this process. We are hopelessly unable to enter in without you engaging on our behalf. And so we invite you into our presence in order to fill and in a very real way consume us. Make us into the things that you call us to be for the sake of your name. for the building of your kingdom. We ask it in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, so now I've been at it for a long time. We can finally look at Leviticus 9. The ordination, actually Aaron's offering for himself, the high priest, after seven days of ordination. So if we look in Leviticus 9 at verse 2 and then verses 7 through 14, what we see is that Aaron had to offer a sin or guilt offering 
for himself. First thing, because he was the high priest, he's first in line, make this sin offering. Now, one of the references, one of the, one of the resources I used in order to, to prepare this morning asked this question. If Aaron and his sons had been locked up in the tabernacle making sacrifice for sin every day for seven days, what sin could he possibly have left over to make a sacrifice regarding? Part of that whole thing we talked about, the unintentional sins, is the fact that just within us, sin resides. And that has to be dealt with all day, every day. And that's really why a sin offering had to be made for the high priest. Now, that was the first offering. And it's interesting that the very first offering in the whole Levitical system of sacrifices was this sacrifice. It's the only sacrifice ever in which a calf was sacrificed. Why a calf? Because a year ago, the glaring sin, right? The 800-pound gorilla in the room. You're the guy who made the calf, the golden calf, right? So why offer a calf at this time? Because Aaron still had within him all the potential he had a year ago, and that has to be covered. It's just like God to remind us of the things we need to repent from, isn't it? The Holy Spirit's ministry convince us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The second offering that was made in this system for Aaron, the high priest, was a free will or burnt offering, which reminds us of what it means to be wholly devoted to the Lord. Everything about us, wholly devoted. So Aaron, the high priest, had these two sacrifices. One covering his sin, making atonement, preparing a circumstance in which Aaron could come back and go, God, I dedicate myself to you. Even the part of me that was just covered by that other sacrifice. After those two offerings, after those two sacrifices, Aaron, as the high priest, made sacrifices on behalf of the people. Now remember, these are the first sacrifices ever in Israel's system of sacrifices. So in verse 15 of Leviticus 9, we see Aaron making another sin offering. This time, it's for the people, for their guilt, because, you know, They kind of forced Aaron to do something back there a year ago, right? And they entered into worship. And the ground opened up and swallowed some, but you know there were guilty consciences in that group. Absolutely. This offering that Aaron made for the people reminded them that redemption of their sin was necessary, atonement had to be made for them. In verse 16, another sacrifice, a burnt offering, which talks about devotion to God. So in the same way that the high priest had to be atoned for and before he could dedicate himself to the Lord, so with the people, their sin had to be atoned for before they could dedicate themselves to the Lord. In verse 17, after that, there's another, a third offering on behalf of the people. This is a grain or gift offering, and it spoke of gratitude or thanksgiving for what God has done. Thanksgiving, by the way, 
and I'll give you a really good example of this in a minute. Thanksgiving is the foundation upon which praise for God is built. Without thanksgiving, worship is a little shaky. And then in verses 18 through 21, a fourth sacrifice on behalf of the people. Come on, you got to understand, this is the sixth sacrifice in a row that day. This is a day after the seven days of ordination were completed, and the people have to, you know, watch these sacrifices every day. They watch the Aaron and his sons sitting in the doorway to the tent of meeting, eating, having fellowship around some of the leftovers from those sacrifices, and they're watching it seven days in a row. On the eighth day, boom, two more sacrifices for the high priest and four for the people. So this is the sixth sacrifice that day. It has to be late in the day. But this sacrifice was the peace offering. This is the way that God set out for us. Actually, it's for him. He's the one who made peace. The peace was between God and our sin. That's why on the mountain, it was fire and smoke and darkness and lightning and thunder and earthquakes and terrifying because there was no peace between him and us. After atonement, there was an opportunity for peace, but God made the way. We did not find our way back to him. He came to us. And as we pointed out early in the last series, this whole system of sacrifices, this is God teaching his people how to relate to him. Deal with sin. Dedicate. What's next? give thanks, enter into fellowship. So here it is, the fourth one, the peace offering. God invites his people into fellowship. And you should note that process. This is the way it goes even today. First, atone. Sin has to be dealt with. Second, devoted to God. Third, giving of thanks. Enter into worship of a transcendent, out there, awesome, powerful, holy God. And fourth, he enters into fellowship with us. All according to his plan, not according to us trying to manipulate him with sacrifices. No, he taught us the cost of sin and he made the way back. The next thing I want to point out is that blessings were poured out after these sacrifices. God poured out blessing. I want to look for a minute at verse 22. So I'm in Leviticus 9, 22. And um, as, as the end of the fourth or sixth in a row sacrifice was made, Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he stepped down after making the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. Now, I've wondered what might he have said? What blessing would Aaron have given at that point in time? I mean, this is the beginning, right? These are the first words from the high priest in the process of the whole Levitical system. This is the very first time the high priest could talk to the people. What did he say? There is a prescription that God made for this speech, for this blessing. It's in Numbers chapter six, and it goes like this. The command is from God to Moses, Speak to Aaron and to his sons, saying, 
In this way, you will bless the children of Israel. You will say to them, I know you've never heard these words before, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. <clears throat> I believe that that is a huge blessing. Now remember, they spent a year afraid. I don't know what that kind of stress does to your body or your mind for a day. I mean, I've been under stress. I've been afraid of things. And I know what it does to me. I know what it means when fear ties my guts up in a knot and causes my mind to focus in one thing and blots out all other things. I'm pretty sure I know what it does to my blood pressure. I know what it does to my appetite. I mean, we all have been there, right? But every day for over a year, that kind of fear? I mean, they had to be right on the edge of run away, God's coming, right? All the time. They have, I don't know what that does to your body. And these words of blessing from Aaron speaks right to all the concerns. May the Lord allow his countenance to shine on you. May he extend grace. This is the opposite of fight or flight, right? This is the opposite of be ready to run because you never know when God's going to unload. No, this is stop. Sit down. Relax. Enjoy God's presence. Mm. The blessing poured out. Whatever Aaron said, whether those are the actual words, and I believe they were because, hey, that's what's prescribed and that's what's going on here. But whatever the words were, the real blessing was about to show up. And in verse 23 of Leviticus 9, it says this. Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. Okay, so sacrifice number six. Aaron, the Lord bless you. And then Aaron and Moses turn around and they go into the tent of meeting. And I'm, I would be sitting there going... Is the show over right now? Okay, because the two main actors, they just went aside. <clears throat> Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. When they came out and blessed the people, now the blessing we just talked about, that was prescribed for the priests. Moses was a type of priest, but he was also prophet, and he wasn't descended from Aaron. So he and Aaron came out of the tent, found it. I don't know if they could even help themselves. They just, they had to maybe spontaneously bless the people again. Going like, no, it's not over yet. Hold on, there's more. The glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. The Lord make his countenance shine upon you. The glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Then fire came out. This is what they were afraid of. Fire coming out. But in this case, fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the offering and consumed the portions of fat 
And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. So in the context, I could imagine them going, like, shouting? No. I imagine them screaming for their lives. But that's not the way it's written. The implication from the words and the, and the structure there is that they shouted with a shout of joy. <clears throat> and they fell on their faces to worship. Now look, for a year it's been, is God going to do something? ready to run but now it's fall on my face in worship the glory appears the weightiness of God's presence but also the lightness that comes from his just treatment of sin and an expression of his grace. So what did God just reveal about himself in this instant when fire came out from his presence that everybody could see because he appeared to all the people and fire comes out of his presence and consumes what's on the altar and the people shout in joy and fall on their face in front of the very thing they had been terrified of for a year. God revealed in that moment his righteousness, the fact that sin had to be dealt with. His holiness, the fact that he couldn't just allow sin to go on. He will deal with it. Not he must because there's some rule somewhere, but because of who he is, he will deal with sin. He revealed there his truth. That is that all the things he'd been telling Moses to tell the people for all this time were actually true and would accomplish just what he said they would accomplish God at this point revealed his wisdom to the nation of Israel wisdom in that he is able to find a way to deal with sin and not destroy the sinner and last God's grace was revealed in that moment, the fact that he took it upon himself to limit that awesome power that was on the mountain to that location for the sake of redeeming his people. In short, God revealed the sum of all he is, and in a way, that we would, just, we would never get it. We're just that dense. We would, we'd see this awesome thing. We'd be moved to worship because of it. We'd be relieved. But we would never understand all the fullness of God's righteousness and holiness and wisdom and goodness and truth and grace. In that moment of fire coming out from the presence of the Lord, God made a statement. He didn't just reveal himself. He made a statement. This sacrifice approved. This priesthood Approved. So we have three blessings, not just the one Aaron spoke of, not just the one Moses and Aaron declared together after coming out of the tent. We have three blessings that result from this whole thing. First, God's revealed person. Just God revealed what he's like. There's no greater blessing. Second, 
God accepted the sacrifice and confirmed his approval of the system he just created and inaugurated. And third, the joy of God's presence. It wasn't joy for a year, it's joy today. And that joy leads to worship. All of these things were real in an earthly sense. But scripture declares to us that they were only images, pictures of the reality that would one day take place in heaven. That reality was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Sacrifices, he is the sin offering. He is the atonement, not like the one they had to make all day, every day, forever. And once a year, the high priest brought out, you know, the, on the day of atonement, the sacrifice and the scapegoat. That, not like those, kind of like those, but not like those. Like those because it takes away sin, but not like those because it takes away sin once for all. Forever. Jesus is also the invitation to follow the Father in a dedicated life. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. 1 Corinthians 1, 9. (coughs) Pardon me. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. 1 John 1, 3. God's glory was fully revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. John 1.14 says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. This fire from the presence of the Lord that consumed this offering. This fire of approval of the sacrifice, it illustrates something for us. It's a picture of something. It's a picture of the Father's approval and acceptance of our sin offering. Jesus, the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. That fire is about purity and truth and intensity. And it is an illustration of the resurrection. The resurrection is God's stamp of approval on the sacrifice that Jesus made. Just as the fire that consumed the offering on the altar was God's acceptable. Jesus was also our high priest. And just as that fire that came out from the presence of the Lord approved the priesthood that had just been inaugurated, so fire as a display of power and glory is parallel in the New Testament with the pouring out of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost in tongues of fire on the believers. It's parallel but also the indwelling of the Spirit in us who have depended on the sacrifice of the Lamb of God for atonement for our sins. 
okay, uh, all these things are really cool and really interesting and kind of overwhelming in some ways, but they mean something. They're not just all of these theoretical things that line up and we could say, wow, God's really cool the way he laid it all out and fulfilled it all because some of these things apply to us. And so we have to ask the question in face of all of this information, we have to ask the question, so what? I try to get a little twist there all the time because... If you just say, so what, every week, everybody goes like, oh, yeah, so what again? But no, this, listen, the effectiveness of the priesthood is powered by the fire and the oil. These things were present in these sacrifices. We carry good news to the lost. We are in a lot of ways, like Aaron and his sons, when they were making the sacrifices, we are a lot like them when we're telling people the good news of how to obtain life through faith in Christ. And that effort is empowered by the presence of the Holy Spirit. We carry good news to the lost, through the message we bear and the presence and power of the Holy Spirit within us, the lost enter into Jesus' atoning sacrifice. Through our influence in their lives, by the way, don't just think of the lost, think in terms of discipleship of training in righteousness. See, around here, we used to call it practicing our personal priesthood. That means we work together to build each other up. So through the message we bear and the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit, the lost enter into Jesus' atoning sacrifice, but through our influence in their lives and one another's lives, They and we learn devotion to God. Through our influence in their and each other's lives, we learn service to God. Through the salvation that comes to them, through the truth of the message that we bear, they come to express thanksgiving to God for his grace and come to worship him. Through the fellowship that we extend to them and to one another, we enter into the same fellowship we share with the Father and the Son. That's just more facts. There's one extended so what. So, we must always be going through the process of the four sacrifices. We must always be confessing our sin in the face and light of the atonement that Jesus bought on our behalf. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. We must always be moving into deeper devotion and dedication to him. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 8, which begins like this. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. I'm sorry, that's 2 Peter. We must always be giving thanks, which is worship. There are at least 50 
references in the Psalms to the connection between thanksgiving and worship. I'll focus on one. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the people. Everybody's watching. I will sing praises to you among the nations. Psalm 57, 9. And we must constantly be seeking the peace that leads to fellowship with the Father, a restored fellowship that was lost in the garden but reclaimed on the cross. And last, we must constantly be renewing our love for one another. Love for the brethren results in Colossians 3, 14 through 17. Beyond all things put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to the Father. There's only one so what. It's extended, but let's compress it. Constantly be pursuing unity with God and fellowship with him and his people. That's so what? That's what we have to do. That's where we go from here.